Hello everyone. My name is Tamsin Peach and I'm a, a research fellow at the Department of History and also a teaching as the senior teaching fellow here at Women's College. And I want to welcome you all to the University of Sydney and also to Sydney Ideas. Sydney Ideas is a public program that aims to bring some of our leading thinkers to the wider Sydney community. Um, and welcome also to the Women's College, a residential college within the University of Sydney since, uh, since 1888. And before we begin the proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built, and as we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So today's lecture is part, and you might have seen the sign as you came in, of the War and Peace Universities in the First World War conference that has been taking place today at St Paul's College within the University of Sydney. And we'd like to thank Meredith Hall and Sydney Ideas for making uh, this collaboration possible. We also extend our thanks to Women's College and to the principal, Dr Amanda Bell, for their generosity in hosting us here tonight. At least 20 graduates from the Women's College saw active service in the First World War, at a time when it was very difficult for women to serve within the Australian Armed Forces. They did so by finding their way into the services in Britain, through family and personal connections, and in some cases through dogged personal determination. So the format for this evening will be a lecture of about an hour, followed by an audience question and answer session for which we have a handheld mic. And I ask that you speak directly into the mic, but I'll re remind you of that later. Um, and the event should conclude by about 7.30. We're also recording the talk for later podcast on the university website. And tonight, APAC, the Australian Public Affairs Channel, are filming this event as well. And indeed, well, they might for our speaker. And maybe you'd like to turn all your mobile phones off at this juncture. Um, and well, they might. For our speaker tonight uh, is Glenda Sluger, Professor of International History at the University of Sydney. And the name Glenda Sluger is one that is instantly recognisable to historians of internationalism, European nationalism, identity, immigration and gender history, not only in Australia, but across Britain, Europe and the United States. And I know this because on a recent uh, research visit, extended research visit to Europe and, and England, Glenda's reputation sailed before me wherever I went. I was um, having coffee with academic colleagues at Heidelberg University and upon being asked where I was from, I said I work at the University of Sydney and, and I was invariably greeted by the response, oh, Glenda Slugas at the University of Sydney. And then I moved to London and... Um, and I was, I was greeted with the response, oh, Glenda Sluger, I'm looking, launching her book next week. And then at Oxford, even more remarkably, oh, Glenda Sluger, she's here at the moment. And I am completely confident that I would hear exactly the same words in Paris, Harvard, Vienna, Leiden and Cambridge, all places that Glenda has held fellowships. And this international recognition is testimony, testimony to Glenda's wide and distinguished scholarship on the cultural histories of nationalism and internationalism. Most recently, these have included The Problem of Trieste and the Italo-Yugoslav Border, published in 2001, The Nation's Psychology and in International Politics, published in 2006, 
and they, if not hot, well, at least warm off the press, Internationalism in the Age of Nationalism, which came out last year. This latest work argues that contrary to our usual understanding of the 20th century as an era of nationalism, the concepts of nationalism and internationalism were very much entwined throughout the 20th century and mutually shaped the attitudes that influence global politics in the present day. And I remember being particularly struck by her discussion in this book of the spaces as well as the temporalities of internationalism. The history of internationalism, she reminds us, has always involved forgetting and the various global futures envisioned by so many different kinds of actors in the interwar period especially were also premised on the making and unmaking of certain kinds of pasts. And maybe we'll hear a little bit more about that tonight. This attentiveness to the tensions that pulled at those who took up the idea of the international, including women and those outside Europe, and to what it meant to them and indeed to their lived experience of the idea of the international, is a notable feature of Glenda's approach to a field that often seems dominated by institutions and official conventions. And soon too, I hope we can expect another publication, maybe, that examines uh, these themes, as Glenda is currently completing a study on the Congress of Vienna that aims to recover the lost history of women in international politics. So Professor Sluga has been awarded the Max Crawford Medal by the Australian Academy of the Humanities. In 2006, she was appointed a member of the International Scientific Committee for the History of UNESCO. And in 2009, she was elected the Australian Academy of the Humanities. Perhaps a damehood is next. <laughs> These honours reflect Glenda's innovative research, but they also speak to her intellectual generosity, her expansive collegiality, her mentorship of students and younger colleagues, and a preparedness to engage in the wider aspects of academic life. It is these qualities, as much as world-class scholarship, that have earned her the admiration, the much-deserved admiration of her peers, and that infect us all with a study, with a sense of the importance and urgency of the study of the past. It was therefore with a great sense of pride, but also possibly relief, that the University of Sydney received the news that in 2013, Glenda had been awarded the Kathleen Fitzpatrick Australian Research Council Laureate Fellowship, a scheme designed to attract and keep world-class researchers in Australia. And for the next five years, she will run a major project titled Inventing the International, the Origins of Globalisation. This work will build on Glenda's own formidable international standing to position Australia as a leader in research on the a research on the historical legacies of internationalism. Approaching this subject from the perspective of people and ideas, it aims to provide a new kind of history of the intersection of politics and economics in the making of the modern global world. In tonight's lecture, titled Nationalism, Internationalism and the Legacies of the First World War, Glenda will draw on this extensive body of work to examine the question that occupied so many in 1919. In the face of so much destruction and brutal loss of life, what lessons could be drawn from the conflict? How should the world be made again? Discussing the legacies of the First World War from the perspective of its end and focusing on the twinned principles on which a new post-world international order was to be established, namely nationality and the League of Nations. Her aim is to understand the relative significance of nationalism and of what contemporaries articulated as a new era of internationalism in the last years of the war and in its wake. So please join me in welcoming Professor Glenda Sluger.
Thank you very much. It's very generous. And thanks also to Associate Professor Julia Horn for inviting me to give this keynote and to Women's College for hosting this lecture. It's so lovely to be here. Well, historians such as A.J.P. Taylor have long argued that in contrast to the impetus of nation and empire, internationalism was an insignificant part of the peace of 1919. Given the cool history war provoked by the centenary of World War I, by that I mean the Serbian academics who, prompted by their governments, are boycotting a Sarajevo conference on the centenary organised by Bosnians, and the French and the British governments are taking irritated issue with versions of the war's history that want to spread blame equally among the great powers and not just point the finger at Germany. It's hard not to be painfully reminded of the irrevocable damage that can be wreaked by thoughts and actions we are apt to name as nationalism. In this lecture, though, my brief is to explore the war's lessons and legacy, a perspective that cannot fail but remind us that the peacemaking process that brought an end to the war confirmed two principles of peacemaking, namely national self-determination and the creation of a League of Nations. As I will show, this twin legacy was the product of a broad history of social and intellectual engagement by men and women with the ideas of nationalism and internationalism, a history that connects the post-war with significant cultural and political changes that had taken place before and during the war. Despite the claims of historians such as Taylor, looking only at nationalism and neglecting internationalism is like preferring a monocle over the optics offered by a pair of glasses or over the convenience of bifocals, which I'm wearing. So looking at both allows us, I think, to bring into focus the history of how a future after the war was imagined during the war and the lessons that people thought the war had taught them as the war itself was progressing. A history we still know very little about, I think, in the Australian context. And I would argue that it, um, this perspective on the aspirations of uh, a broader uh, segment of, this, of the community of academics and women uh, as well as uh, politicians give us a sense of the horizon of expectations that shaped political debate, agency and institutions in the 20th century. I'm going to start though with uh, a story about this woman. In 1915, a little over a year of fighting, a British nurse named Edith Cavell was executed by a German firing squad. So that's Edith. Some of you may have noticed the monument that stands in a small pedestrian respite at St Martin's Place near Trafalgar Square in London, opposite the National Portrait Gallery. And that's uh, a monument of Edith. I'll come back to it in a minute, I'll show you in a minute. Cavell, let's hear about Cavell first. Cavell was born in 1865 in a village on the outskirts of Norwich. A woman of her time, she started out her grown-up life as a governess and then took up nursing in her 30s. By 1914, she was in charge of a nursing school in Brussels and has, had established a French language nursing journal. Altogether, she was a prominent figure in the local medical community. When the war broke out, Cavell was visiting England, but she quickly returned to German-occupied Brussels to help out through her nursing school and clinic, which had been taken over by the Red Cross. It was well known that Cavell worked with the local Red Cross unit to save the lives of soldiers from all sides. The German military, though, accused her of aiding and abetting the escape of over 200 Allied soldiers from German-occupied Belgium, an accusation she never denied, and she was arrested and tried along with 33 others. 
In fact, uh, some stories suggest that she was given away by a postcard sent by some very grateful soldiers from England saying thank you so much for helping us escape. On October 12, 1915, Cavell was in, uh, executed. After her death, Cavell was almost immediately transformed into a heroic martyr for the Allied cause. Her reputation as a Florence Nightingale of the Great War, a British Joan of Arc, spread through the empire. She became a national hero in Britain and her memory an instrument of anti-German sentiment at both ends of the Atlantic, as well as in the British Empire and beyond. So not only do we find a Rue, Rue Edith Cavell in Brussels, but Edith Cavell Boulevard in Port Stanley, Ontario, and a Cavell Corona, a geological feature on Venus. Hospitals in Peterborough and Brussels and Toronto, schools in Vancouver, Ontario, New Brunswick and Bedford, the Edith Cavell Building uh, at the University of Queensland, a street in Johannesburg, another in Mauritius, a car park in England and a bridge in New Zealand. In New South Wales, the Edith Cavell Trust still provides scholarships to nurses. Cavell's death offers endless examples of the ways in which the memorialisation of the war has a history that extends back to the war itself and an important place in the strategic deployment of nationalism invoked as patriotism in sustaining, if not igniting, the war. So these are some images of how her death was used at the time, in fact, as a recruitment strategy. In Australia, um, this is a particular uh, a French magazine under the collection Patrie, of, of, uh, the, the Fatherland, a stamp, remember Edith Cavell murdered October 12, 1915, and that, in fact, is a church window in Norwich where she was born with an image of Cavell surrounded by Florence Nightingale and two saints. And this is a Brussels postcard. In Australia in 1916, there were two films made about Cavell's execution and segments were used as recruitment um, propaganda during the war. In 1919, Cavell's body was brought back to Britain after being exhumed and she was given an elaborate state memorial service at Westminster. Now, my own interest in Cavell concerns the competing memories of the war and the nature of public engagement with its purpose. Take, for example, the eventual design of the London Monument uh, that was constructed by, uh, under, with the oversight of the Edith Cavell War Memorial Committee, chaired by the owner of the Daily Telegraph, the Lord Mayor and Bishop of London, and Chairman of London Council, even though her own family said, well, actually, what... Edith would like, have liked would have been to remembered by establishing a retired nurse's home. Planned in 1915 but only completed in 1920 because of a wartime shortage of marble, the monument featured a 10 feet high Cavell wearing the nurse's uniform she wore to meet the firing squad and his sculptor George Frampton who was the president of the Royal Sculptor Society donated his work and wrote to the family to ask you know, exactly the detail about what she was wearing when um, she was executed. Crowning the monument was the Geneva Cross standing for nursing. You can see that in this image just there. And the figures of a woman and child standing in as allegories for Belgium and other small nations under the protection of Britain. On its front, the monument featured the tribute for king and country. At its rear, a British lion crushing the serpent of envy, malice, spite and treachery with the motto, faithful unto death. On its two sides, the words devotion and fortitude. Beneath Cavell's feet was the inscription, Brussels Dawn, October 12, 1915, and above her head, an imposing beacency for king and country and humanity. Above her head, the imposing humanity. The first time I saw the monument, I was struck by the way in which the, mon the monument folded Cavell's memory into both the more predictable cause for king and country 
and humanity. And when I began to do a bit more research, I discovered another as intriguing fact, the origins of the text that is even more awkwardly juxtaposed with for king and country and placed at the opposite pole of humanity. And they are the words, patriotism is not enough. I have no hatred or bitterness for anyone. The words were added four years after the monument was erected in 1924 at the behest of the National Council of Women of Great Britain and Ireland and approved by the British Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald. These were alleged to be Cavell's last words, uttered to her Anglican chaplain the night before facing the firing squad. The additional text was not uncontroversial. It prompted the suggestion that the sentence should have inverted commas. After all, what proof was there that she had really said this? And was it derogatory of the other patriotic sentiments uh, chosen in 1915 and which echoed through the other British memorialisations? The, co the debate continued into the 1920s and 1930s. As late as 1937, Cavell made reappearances in her new guise, pointing to a different view of the war and its underpinnings. In Virginia Woolf's The Years, two characters, Eleanor and Peggy, are in a taxi, and the narrative goes like this. The taxi stopped dead under a statue. The lights shone on its cadaverous pallor. Always reminds me of an advertisement of sanitary towels, said Peggy, glancing at the figure of a woman in nurse's uniform holding out her hand. Eleanor was shocked for a moment. The only fine thing that was said in the war, she said aloud, reading the words cut on the pedestal. Well, it didn't come to much, said Peggy sharply. The story of Cavell's monument and the cadences of her memorialization lead us then into a number of historical directions. The defeatist tones of Wolfe's use of Cavell's memory mirroring the darkness of the late 1930s, but also an earlier history that I want to argue reflects the more complex status of nationalism in the war and the 1920s. Cavell's monument and its memorialization leads us, lead us to a history of the significance of internationalism profoundly entangled in the patriotic and imperial imperatives that historians have preferred to recognise. So unravelling the history of the relative status and relationship of the language of patriotism and humanity during the war could take us to different parts of the world and all kinds of actors, from Bolshevik revolutionaries to Quaker pacifists, Egyptian feminists or South Asian anti-colonialists. But this evening, I want to focus more simply on the transatlantic and British imperial context. And in keeping with the theme of the conference that this lecture is part of on uh, universities and the war, uh, to look a, a bit at the roles of social scientists and academics during the war in, uh, and their contribution to the validation of the vocabulary that provided important foundations for a post-war peace and that we can think of as patriotism, nationalism, national self-determination, humanity, internationalism, the League of Nations. Why should we care about academics and their words? In part because the First World War saw their recruitment, the recruitment of academics, by the governments of the great powers, especially Britain, France and the United States, as expert advisers. Some uh, of these uh, academics were social scientists, including geographers, but in the main, they were historians and classicists. It was really the heyday of the historian, in, much the, in, uh, in the same way as the Second World War would feature anthropologists and sociologists. This recruitment of expert advisers is further evidence of the close connections between intellectuals and key male political figures, unlike academics now, I'd argue, connected through extensive networks of social, intellectual and political association. And while women were less likely to be the academics or politicians in this mix because of gender discrimination, middle-class women such as Cavell herself 
are also crucial to my historical project because of their place in these networks and the extent of their activities on the fringes of academia and politics on behalf of humanity and British imperial patriotism. It is a story that in some respects begins around the time Cavell was born. It begins in 1863 when the horrors of an earlier war long since forgotten, the Battle of Solferino between Austria and Sardinia, led to a Swiss businessman to establish, led a Swiss businessman to establish the Red Cross as a means of nursing wounded soldiers in cases of war for the sake of humanity. And this was followed in 1964 by the Geneva Convention guaranteeing the neutrality of medics and field hospitals for the amelioration of the condition of the wounded in armies in the field. By the time the 1907 Hague International Convention on the Pacific Settlement of International Disputes was agreed between the sovereign powers of a long, long list of countries that start with Prussia, the USA, Argentina, Argentina Austria-Hungary, Belgium, Bolivia, Brazil, Bulgaria, Chile, China, Colombia, Cuba, Denmark, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Spain, France, UK, Greece, Guatemala, Haiti, Italy, Japan, Luxembourg, Mexico, Montenegro, Nicaragua, Norway, Panama, Paraguay, Netherlands, Peru, Persia, Romania, Russia, Salvador, Serbia, Siam, Sweden, Switzerland, the Ottoman Empire, Uruguay, and the United States of Venezuela. And I had to say those because just to give you a sense of how dense the international community already is in that period, it's a very comp complex place. Well, over that period, by, by the period from the 1860s to the decade before the war, the landscape of internationalising developments had also radically changed. The 1907 International Convention, for example, on international disputes, was symptomatic of a more compelling international turn that took place in the decades before the First World War under the aegis of humanity, and for which the... Uh, International Committee of the Red Cross and the Geneva Convention would become potent symbols. Against an, a background of escalating military stockpiles and imperial wars, the emergence of 10 new international organisations and associations for each year of the 1890s devoted to all manner of internationalised questions of peace, health, political rights, labour conditions, travel, communication, immigration, as well as women's rights. Uh, within nations, encouraged some contemporaries to think of this period of the early 20th century as a new era of internationalism. And it was new and different because, they argued, it wasn't like the abstract philosophising of the early 19th century, but it was grounded in the objective social facts of internationality, the objective social facts as they saw them. These objective facts could include the creation in 1888 of the International Council of Women, representing 53 women's organisations from nine countries and followed later on by the National Council of Women of Great Britain and Ireland that ended up asking for the words to be changed or added to Cavell's monument. The International Council of Women was also characteristic of this new objective, allegedly objective internationalism because it aimed to achieve its international humanitarian and pacifist ends by uh, not only creating national associations to those ends, but lobbying for the rights of the groups they called the subject races repressed by empires. Sometimes they were you know, the Irish or the Egyptian or the Georgian. And the argument that they ran was that the satisfaction of demands for national self-determination would lead to a more just, internationally conscious and thus more peaceful world. A logic that also saw many of these same women involved in anti-slavery, um, causes and the Aborigines Protection Society. Membership of these international organisations 
with their twin focus on nationalism and internationalism as the method of peace, reached into the upper echelons of political life across Europe, from middle-class feminists to media men to politicians, bankers and oil barons. John Hobson, the British economist, explained with confidence in this period that it had become impossible, he said, to trace down those issues which are presented to us as great social issues, political or economic, and to find any solution which is satisfactory that does not present the elements of internationality. On this view, internationalism was an objective fact of modern life, mirrored in the rise of international laws, institutions, intergovernmental cooperation, and the opportunities for transnational sociability, thanks to new technologies of communication and travel, but also new ways of understanding the subjective realism of nationality and its roots in patriotism. Before the war, Woodrow Wilson, the man who as President of the United States presided over the processes of peacemaking in 1919, Wilson described patriotism as a sort of energy, he said, a basic human urge that is amenable to the improvement by the examples of civil behaviour and social duties inherent in the political order. Now this was said by Wilson in the guise of an academic, political scientist, historian, but it reflected an increasingly popular view that whereas national patriotism used to be considered an expression of the territorial or political state of the fatherland, this comes from a, a woman's journal of the period, it was now understood to be not so much a stage as an ineluctable element of human nature, a psychological reality, an effective disposition such as filial or paternal love which everyone could find in oneself and which it would be unnatural not to experience. Not insignificantly, this psychological conception of patriotism was often, as in Wilson's case studies, also dependent on what was understood at the time as racial capacity. It was commonly alleged some peoples had this energy, others did not. Those that did not could not claim national independence. A quick glance through pre-war publications shows up the extent to which the question of the relationship between the national and international were being redefined in this period around the newly discovered psychological interpretations of patriotism as a good kind of nationalism and consciousness of humanity as its corollary on an international scale. In one such example, Margaret Pease's 1911 True Patriotism and Other Lessons on Peace and Internationalism, published in um, London as a textbook for day school or Sunday school teachers, but to be found in fact in every university, including our own, the uh, library still now. Uh, in this book, Pease was careful to make clear that uh, Sunday school teachers who wanted to give lessons on peace had to understand that the native soil, as she put it, of internationalism was the life of the smallest human group. Internationalism, she explained, tends to expand patriotism into a love for humanity, to enlarge national consciousness into world consciousness. So we find the same formula in widespread discussions of the existence or prospects for an international mind, which, like world consciousness, was suggestive of a new kind of individual subjectivity or mentalité that corresponded to the changing sociological conditions of international modern life, but also built on the foundations of national and patriotic feelings. So having all these ideas being redefined in relationship to each other through these new scientific uh, understandings of, or specific to that historical time, scientific understandings of human nature. In a report 
uh, on internationalism in Japan undertaken on the eve of the war for the trustees of the New York-based Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, its author, a Rotarian named Tsujiniro Miyoka, discussed the rise of human conscience from a lower to a higher plane. He described how the love of community grew into patriotism, bringing mankind to the threshold of discovering the truth that, in Miyoka's words, his welfare as well as the welfare of his country cannot be promoted without safeguarding the interest of the world. Miyoka's Japanese experience takes us outside the transatlantic setting, but it also illustrates the reach of an Anglophone intellectual history and the connections between what can be thought of as high and mid-level exponents of ideas. Miyoka attributed his insight to Nicholas Murray Butler, the president of Columbia University and a trustee of the Carnegie Board. Butler had become well known for popularising the term international mind by which he meant the habit of thinking of foreign relations and business in such a way as to inspire friendly and cooperative relations, and as elemental to an evolutionary process already in train that would eventually see war disappear. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, Butler believed that those responsible for that nurturing were less likely to be Japanese and more likely to be men like himself. An international elite instructing public opinion on ethic ethical principles, civilised standards and respect for law, as he put it. Concepts such as the international mind or world consciousness helped reify the alleged objective status of internationalism. Yet even before the war broke out, they were put under intellectual strain by the examples, as John Hobson noted, of the sudden flare-up of intense hostility towards Germany or Russia or France which from time to time possesses the personality of the ordinary British citizen. Hobson's explanation for this phenomenon was neither that nationalism was inevitable nor that, obje that the objective status of internationalism was questionable, but rather that there was a psychological disjuncture between the pace of objective internationalism and the slow-growing sentiments of common humanity, as he described them. The challenge, he said, was to bring the sentiments of humanity up to speed, with the pace of objective internationalism. Whatever we might think of Hobson's explanation, it underlines the consistency with which the national was discussed in the context of the international and vice versa, and the centrality of psychology to the ways in which both ideas were understood. It illustrates the ways in which words and arguments were used to make political claims. Anchoring internationalism to patriotism bolstered, bolstered the relevance of a liberal, institutional and law-focused conception of internationalism, or alternatively, hooking the privileged place of the nation in political and cultural life to internationalism might mitigate the prospect of future wars. What influence did the Academy have in the propagation of these words and arguments? Well, it was under the rising star of psychology that many of these arguments were given their political respectability. Variants of the idea that nationally inflected patriotism was an entrenched and positive feature of human nature echoed through the new psychology that was taking form as a scientific discipline in published works that dwelt on the origins of nationalism in herd instincts or group psychology or that distinguished the more positive psychological provenances of patriotism. We should note that the range of psychological theories of instincts and of the unconscious and of world consciousness, for example, as well as the, of the wellsprings of nationalism in the pre-war period and during the war, that the range of those theories remind us of the scientific and political controversies in which both ideas were mired, rather than the objective status of either nationalism or internationalism, or of their 
psychological explanations. In 1913, a Michigan University-based psychologist, Walter Pillsbury, observed the phenomenon of American Greeks returning to Greece to fight during the Balkan Wars. This led him to launch an inquiry on the importance of race in shaping the national mind. But by the time he published his findings in 1919, the study was titled The Psychology of Nationality and Internationalism. Nationalism might have its origins in race identification, but faced with the question, how does Europe avoid a future war, Pillsbury argued, quote, that supranationality would always exist as a concentric circle of world consciousness, shadowing local and national consciousness. The problem was how to crystallise the broader sympathies now wasted in more or less vague sentimentalism. Once supranational institutions were created, he suggested, international subjectivity would follow as a result of the social adaptation of instincts and habits. It would take about a century, but after that time, the legal foundations of a League of Nations would become as immutable as the Constitution of the United States. So you create the United States and you create Americans. You create the League of Nations and you create international people. George Mead, the well-known American social psychologist who had trained at Harvard, worked at Michigan and most famously was associated with Chicago University, offers us further evidence of how politics was embedded in the wartime discussion of the psychological origins of nationalism and internationalism. So for Mead, the self was constituted through social communication and interactions. He had a, a socially constituted individual, and in an analogous way, you had a socially constituted internationality. The social origins of both the national and the international mind were rationales, in his case, for an international organisation that he conceived of as a League of Nations. That League would provide the social context in which these different nations would get together and start to think of themselves as international, and that this process would eliminate war as the arbiter of international life. As importantly for our understanding of the terms of the peace that were eventually agreed in 1919, Mead's socially constituted international mind looked a lot like Nicholas Butler's, in the sense that both men thought of the international mind, like international arbitration, as relevant to the civilised world, namely Europe and white settler colonies, and only occasionally Japan and the South American republics. So these connections between the wartime worlds of politics and ideas are all the more apparent when we view this same period from the vantage point of social history and bring the often gender-segregated roles of women and men into clearer focus. So within the first year of the outbreak of the war, even as many international institutions, particularly feminist and working class ones, broke up under the strain of war, new national associations supporting the idea of international or supranational government of some kind sprung up on the British political scene. And we know the most about Britain because there were so many there and because of the research that's been done on them. The most popular of these national associations in support of some form of international government mobilised broad sections of the population in support of a collective system of international relations identified with the creation of a League of Nations. Helen McCarthy, who's the historian of the British League of Nations uh, associations, argues that characteristic of these uh, associations were, the, were their centrist policies and how mainstream their appeal was. Critical to the formation of these associations were the same academics and politicians who around uh, this time also began to be recruited by governments to advise on the conditions of an anticipated peace. By 1915, there were two separate League of Nations societies in Britain. Uh, one created by a, a Cambridge classicist uh, called Goldsworthy Lowes Dickinson, 
uh, and another by and and with Leonard Wolfe, Virginia's husband, and another um, by by Gilbert Murray, the Regis Professor of Greek at Cambridge, and Edward Gray, the Liberal uh, ex Foreign Secretary. In 1918, these two societies merged and established the League of Nations Union, with Gray as the president, uh, the junior uh, foreign minister Robert Cecil uh, as um, as chair and Gilbert Murray as its deputy. Across the range of League associations in Britain and elsewhere, it was a fundamental premise that patriotism was compatible with internationalism, regardless of how one envisaged a future League of Nations. We should not be surprised to find that the League of Nations Union's mantra was enlightened patriotism. So just to get a sense of how widespread this, this interest in the League of Nations was, um, membership tallies show us that in 1920, for example, there were 60,000 paid-up members with 417 branches. A year later, there were 150,031 members with 665 branches. Uh, by 1925, there were 255, 469,000 members and um, 2,173 branches and 1,642 corporate affiliates. Interest in the League in fact, it peaked in 1931 with nearly half a million members. Interest in the League was part of wider political culture engaged in the democratisation of foreign policy and in the idea already well anchored in political Anglophone and Francophone discourse by this time that peace was dependent on new international architecture and the balancing of patriotism and humanity. There was no shortage of reference among League of Nations uh, supporters to the British Empire as a model of international community, unifying diverse peoples and places. The empire was even rationalised as a transitional nursery for new nations, as well as for the federalisation, formal or metaphorical, of those nations. The League of Nations Union also entrenched humanity as a concept of particular relevance to women, who otherwise, of course, had few uh, national political rights. Middle-class women were, in fact, the mainstay of the League of Nations Union, in part because of the already established structures of women's pacifist movements and religious organisations to which the League Union became attached, such as the Jewish Women's Union, the Church Army Girls Clubs, Council of the Girls Friendly Society, and in part because women who felt marginalised in the national public sphere championed what they called the instinct of motherhood as particularly fitting for the promotion of a League. So in her very extensive study, McCarthy found that many women active in the League of Nations movement appeared willing to accept that their natural arena for action lay in the League's humanitarian and auxiliary work. By seeking to mother the world, female League supporters pressed into service the ideology of social maternalism, which had accompanied the philanthropic and social reform work of middle-class women in the Victorian and Edwardian eras. In the case of the League of Nations Union, women ran study circles, public meetings, staged theatre pageants, garden parties, wrote letters to MPs. And the League actually took as its symbol a Madonna-style figure with a star suspended like a halo over her modest headdress. And she appears in cartoons of the period. Uh, this image of the League doesn't quite fit with the fact that even though women um, made up a quite large number of the, the local membership, the inner circle, of course, and the executive were, were male. And included in that inner circle were academics such as Gilbert Murray and Albert Zimmern. Murray was born in Sydney in 1866, a year after Cavell, into a family which the um, 
uh, ADB describes as keen on the protection of animals, children, foreigners, heretics, unpopular minorities and the like. As Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford, he helped popularise in his historical work the psychological concepts of the unconscious and herd instinct and the more general view of nations as having their origins in psychological phenomena. Murray was also known as the intellectual godfather of English liberalism, a role that he worked to support the idea of a league as an organisation that could reduce the passion of nationality by not acknowledging consciousness of nationhood in all cases and discriminating instead on the basis of the international reverberations of the specific national issue, which meant for him, though, that undoubtedly the case of England was one in which patriotism was significant and important and had to be recognised and not handed over as a cause to the Tories or the militarists. Murray eventually had a long prominent career into the Second World War promoting liberal international values on an imperial model and under the auspices for a while of world citizenship, or the, he hated that particular name. He even uh, uh, was in charge of uh, a cultural body called the International Institute for Intellectual Cooperation that was uh, part of the League in the interwar period. Alfred Zimmern also had a long career uh, in this realm. He hoped to run uh, UNESCO at one point. In 1919, he was uh, a classicist, an English classicist, morphing into uh, the chair of international relations at Aberystwyth. International relations was a discipline that was created as a result of the war, and he was the first chair ever anywhere. But during the war, he was on the League of Nations Union's research committee and the British Advisory Committee on the League of Nations as well. As well as Murray was also on that British Advisory Committee. Zimmern's theorisation and rationalisation of internationalism echoed too the new psychological theories of group psychology and national instincts. A self-proclaimed convert from his Jewish identification to an English patriotism, Zimmern proposed in his many wartime writings that no theory or ideal of internationalism can be helpful in our thinking or effective in practice unless it is based on a right understanding of the place which national sentiment occupies and must always occupy in the life of mankind because of human nature. The road to internationalism, he said, lies through nationalism. The, L the League of Nations Union then offers us a telling example, I think, of the close links between academia and government in the course of the war and after. But those connections ran even deeper. During the war, academic expertise was organised by the great powers into national research bodies. The British had the political intelligence department, the Americans had the inquiry, the French had the Comité des Etudes or the Committee of Studies. The British um, department employed Arnold Toynbee, later a chair in modern Greek and Byzantine history at King's College. At the time that he was uh, brought into government service in 1915, however, having evaded military duty, Toynbee was a tutor and fellow in ancient history at Balliol. He was also Gilbert Murray's son-in-law. Toynbee believed that the industrial economy had unified the world and that political unity in some form must follow. And this view also brought him to support the League of Nations Union. If Oxford and Balliol in particular harboured a network of historians involved with the political intelligence department, Cambridge was represented by the historian Harold W. Templey, who authored the eventual official history of the peace process, and who, having fallen ill just prior to his regiment setting sail for their Gallipoli mission, manned the War Office, preparing papers on the historical, political and statistical background to the various tutorial disputes in the Balkans, 
and his fellow former Cambridge student, James Hedlund Morley, Professor of Greek and Ancient History at Queen's College London, also made it to the Peace Conference as an expert advisor. What they thought these men would teach them is a very interesting question. So the value of the understanding of the ancient world. Morley was a supporter of the League on the basis that it would give representation in international politics to smaller states. As he wrote in 1919, we have had enough nationalism and we want the tide to begin flowing in the other direction. In the United States, the body of experts brought together um, uh, or to advise on the post-war and to go to Paris in some cases were men from Yale, Harvard, Princeton, they had their headquarters at the American Geography Society. And they're interesting because of their connections across the Atlantic to the um, British world I've been describing. Uh, for example, Walter Lippmann, uh, who was linked to Harvard, uh, was also uh, part of this British progressive circle that brought in the LSE, Oxbridge, and uh, the east coast of the United States of America. And he drafted in 1918 Wilson's famous 14 points including the final point that became the rationale for both the principle of national self-determination and the League of Nations government. As importantly, if we look beyond the academics and scholars who came into the formal employ of governments and ended up at the peace as expert advisers, we discover that women who offered their services and were rejected were still important in these same intellectual and political networks. Many of these women were connected as well to international women's organisations, not just the International Council of Women, but also the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. They included the American Professor of History and Sociology, Emily Green Balch, who taught at Wellesley and was fired for opposing the war. She went on to win a Nobel Prize after the Second World War for her work on the internationalisation of the seas and um, international disarmament. Helena Swanick, the editor of Foreign Affairs, a journal of international understanding, which was the official organ of the pacifist English political group of disaffected laborites, the Union of Democratic Control, to which Ramsay MacDonald belonged, who had become the Prime Minister and who agreed to the change of the wording on um, Cavell's monument. So Swanwick, in this role as the editor of this journal, enjoined the evolution of what she called a sane and constructive internationalism. That meant an internationalism that acknowledged patriotism and love of country, but also sought to serve what she called the cause of international reconciliation and understanding among men. She imagined, too, an international parliament where interests other than national, such as shared vocation, shared motherhood, would combine across national lines, even if in the interests of imperial unity. Maria Gordon Ogilvie, the first woman to be awarded a Doctor of Sciences from the University of London and the first woman PhD from Munich University, believed that her expertise in geology equipped her for the uh, Boundary Commission that was constructed at the end of the war to decide controversial uh, territorial issues. Of course, no one else thought she was, uh, no one who deciding on that commission thought she, she should be on it. But in 1918, Ogilvie announced to an audience of International Council of Women a new era of internationalism. She said, you know, in the future, historians will look back and say, this was a new era of internationalism, based on the promise of this League of Nations. In 1919, she formed the Council for the Representation of Women in the League of Nations, and in 1924, she was a member of the Council of Women that saw, to saw fit to restore Cavell's own words to her monument. By the end of the First World War, then, the picture we have is not of a popular baying for blood on the one hand and the US President Woodrow Wilson bringing the enlightened message of the benefits of a league on the other to the European continent, as some historians would have us believe. 
Rather, the war was the crucible in which varieties of nationalism and internationalism became important to how the world after the war was imagined. If, as some contemporaries argued, the lessons of the war itself were to be learned. When and where there was public engagement with these ideas, it occurred through League societies, especially towards the end of the war and after, and in the context of a public sphere littered with the progressive claims of international mindedness, of the psychological indelibility of patriotism, and of a new era of real or objective internationalism. While the history of the role of scholars and experts and their wider social, intellectual and political networks in the determination of the peace and questions of national self-determination and the League is fairly uneven, I mean, they were not always listened to as politicians and statesmen often opted for strategy or convenience, we cannot help but see the influence that they had in 1919 in the twin focus of the peace on nationality and the creation of a League of Nations. That influence is as evident in the difficulty that they had in agreeing on territorial boundaries, given the intangibility of their psychological criteria, in the determination of a new international system of mandates. Now, this mandate system was, of course, for um, a system for managing the colonial territories that belonged to the vanquished powers and which handed them over for safekeeping to the winners, including Australia, of course, on the grounds that different cultures, races, had distinctive psychological propensities for realising nationhood. And here, George Louis Beer, the American historian, is the expert to watch. So there were three classes of mandates, A, um, B, and C. And C was the worst grade you could get, of course, and that was the mandates of Southwest Africa and the South Pacific, that handed Nauru and New Guinea to Australia as requiring the most political tutelage. These were, uh, Mandate C uh, requirements, suggested best administered under the laws of the mandatory as integral portions of its territory. It's actually part of the territory, not as some um, international territory. In other words, on the imperial and race templates of pre-war and wartime discussions of national psychology, um, national self-determination was to be applied only to certain parts of the world, not to colonial areas or the new mandate areas, which were told they had to wait until they were psychologically and politically mature enough. When it came to the actual League of Nations that was established on the terms of the covenant drafted at the peace, it, it wasn't exactly what everybody expected. The British advisor Templey's six-volume history of the peace makes clear that the range of submissions that were put to the committee drafting the covenant uh, and that were successively rejected were actually quite broad. Even in the context of the prevalent emphasis on the national basis of internationalism, by comparison, the actual League held to a minimalist international agenda, reinforcing the fundamental place of nation states and national patriotism and marginalising many of the democratic ambitions heaped upon it by women in the um, International Council of Women and by the League of Nations Union, which still saw this new international government as uh, expanding the opportunities for democratic representation. Those limitations were evident too in the complaints that women such as Alice Henry, an American epidemiologist and feminist, who within a few years of the League's creation wrote to her sister complaining about the ways in which the limitations of the new League had betrayed the hopes of women. Hamilton was as annoyed by the unperturbed optimism of her close friend, the psychologist George Herbert Mead, who remained, she said, a fanatical adherent of the League. Mead, Hamilton mocked, was still convinced that all the woes of Europe will be over when once we have joined it, the United States. So the different sources of complaint at the League's expression of a minimalist and at times cynical internationalism, Henry's disillusionment, 
like the later efforts of the National Council of Women to restore the words, patriotism is not enough, to Cavell's memory, are a reminder of the extent to which contemporaries associated the new era of internationalism with political progress, only sometimes invested in uh, the institutional detail of world federalism or a world state that would actually come into favour in the 1940s. So this sketch of the wartime intellectual and political landscape in Britain helps us situate the Cavell who uttered the words, patriotism is not, patriotism is not enough, the communities of people and ideas that influenced the inclusion of humanity on the monument alongside for king and country, where humanity both implied the work of Cavell as a woman and nurse, and the compatibility of the cause of humanity and British imperial patriotism, as well as the imperatives that drove the creation of the League of Nations Union and support for a post-war league in combination with the significance of national self-determination. It also leads us to the question of the post-war and the social and intellectual circumstances under which Cavell's memory was reinscribed in the formula, patriotism is not enough. Now, in this uh, respect, there is more evidence uh, that we have of the Australian situation, and in particular of the role of the League of Nations Union here, where branches were finally established in the post-war, in 1921 in New South Wales, and 1925 on the campus of the University of Sydney. In 1926, in Tasmania, by a philanthropist, Emily Dobson, who was a member of the International Council of Women. Nicholas Brown and other historians have shown that on the Australian East Coast, post-war league supporters, like their British counterparts, worked through local networks, always capitalising on the momentum of the sociability within their reach. These networks were as likely to traverse membership of the English Speaking Union, the Student Christian Movement, the Town Planning Association and the Racial Hygiene Association. They all came together and engaged with this idea of the League of Nations Union. They ran membership campaigns, gave out badges, encouraged international pen friends, organised car treasure hunts and international balls, sponsored singing, set off fireworks or sent members to the Brussels World Peace Congress. They also targeted a younger generation through schools. Now, I'd love to meet someone who had this experience, but children were invited to dress in national costumes expressive of the world's cultural diversity, although I think they do that now still, every Harmony Day, and to imagine Geneva. That belongs to the 1920s. Even in quieter years, Sydney alone hosted more than 200 lectures. One of the foundation members of the New South Wales League of Nations Union responsible for these programs was Raymond Watt, for whom the League was an experiment in new techniques of government, he said, deliberative and representative. This experiment was accompanied, he argued, by the new scientific ways of understanding the psychological rather than moral roots of the world's problems. Although membership of the Australian branches of the League of Nations Union was spread evenly among men and women, and as, is, as with its sister societies in Europe and Britain, it peaked in the early 1920s, in 1927, and um, then again in the late 1930s, the momentum was difficult to sustain, regardless of the campaigning. At the outbreak of World War II, the Union's popularity suddenly declined, and it was reduced to redundancy by the disappearance of the League itself. And by 1942, the, the appearance of a new impetus behind the significance of internationalism that was this time less anchored to patriotism or nationalism and more to the idea of world citizenship appeared. But that's another story for another centenary. So back to this one. It's little wonder that after the First World War, the memory of Edith Cavell took on renewed life. There was not only her London monument and its reinterpretation or literary referencing of the pacifist Cavell. There were plays... Uh, George Bernard Shaw mentioned her in his play St Joan and more memorials. There was, in fact, this memorial um, 
which is a bust by Margaret Baskerville, and it was commissioned for, as part of the Shrine of Remembrance development in Melbourne and positioned across the road from the Shrine of Remembrance. Uh, Bruce Gates, in his study of the shrine space, argues that although a tribute to over a million horses killed in the Great War was permitted in the shrine precinct, a monument to a single woman was not. In fact, that's, uh, the monument had to be moved when the National Gallery, Victorian Gallery, was built at the site where um, Cavell's bust stood. And we don't really know much about uh, the ideas behind this particular depiction. Uh, the image appears in some um, war memorial um, publications, but uh, she's often remembered as an Australian nurse. However, the actual memory of Cavell was kept um, more potently alive in film. So in Australia, there had been those two films in 1916. In, 19, um, in the 1920s and 30s, there were three more films. And the most interesting one, I think, was the one that was made in 1928, the second of the three. And it was written by a man born in, in Britain, raised in Fiji and New Zealand, who was an infantry captain during the war, and, became, and trained as a lawyer, and who worked for the League of Nations Union from 1919 as director of propaganda, and then got a job in the League of Nations Secretariat for a short while. The film was controversial because of the message that um, Brinkley, the author, tried to uh, bring across in the script. And that was that Cavell stood for what he called the higher service of humanity, while Germany represented the state. And Cavell was important because she put the higher service of humanity above the state. And it was also controversial because there was a scene in the film, which people argued wasn't true to the facts, where um, the one member of the, G the German firing squad refused to fire. They don't want to kill Edith Cavell. And the uh, commanding officer, the German commanding officer, then shoots that German soldier before shooting Cavell. And uh, so the Germans objected to the, to the movie, and uh, British government, Austin Chamberlain, didn't like it either. The British censorship board for a while tried to prevent it being screened, and it began to kind of have a life of its own at a municipal level. So it's a very interesting kind of manifestation of these tensions in the story of Cavell and what she's supposed to stand for. In 2015, Cavell will be remembered once again if the people at edithcavell.org.uk have their way. For her words, patriotism is not enough, which will be the slogan for the 2015 centenary memorial of her death. So what should we remember about the war? I've tried to argue that the war's legacy was as much about internationalism as nationalism, about humanity as patriotism, about the agency, for better or worse, of women intellectuals and political activists as much as men. There is no doubt that during the war, as before, the translation of internationalism into political objectives marked the simultaneous ascent of the principle of nationality. It is also true that the entangled status and significance of these ideas provoked questions about the limits of national sovereignty and the expanses of international society. Looking back on the war, John Hobson would recall the talk of a new world order fixated on the significance of a supranational sovereignty. Indeed, the discussions that took place in print and public meeting rooms and in correspondence held both themes in constant, even precarious tension. The state as the political form that protected nations and political super-sovereignty as a necessary dimension of a viable and modern international community and gesture towards humanity. 
So the point I've been trying to make is not that internationalism was more important than nationalism as a legacy of the war, or separate from imperialism or racism, nor that it was less influential. Rather, that it is not possible to separate them out in the minds of contemporaries dealing with the effects of war and devoting themselves to the ways of ending war. It is a story that reminds us that the history of nationalism in the 20th century was mutually dependent on the significance of international institutions and responsibility to humanity. It reminds us of international political agents caught up in the political debates and campaigns of the war, including the International Red Cross, as well as the International Council of Women. It should remind us that humanity was invoked as an imperative for more international political coordination and sociability, and as a quality that was specific to non-national women, who by their nature could represent humanitarianism and internationalism, as well as nationalism and imperialism. Even as humanity was at times associated with the claims to civilizational superiority of Britain, America, Australia, you fill in the blanks, nation, it was a constant reminder of the political and cultural pressure to bring the national into some kind of alignment with a consciousness of international responsibilities. From the perspective of the inter intersecting histories of nationalism and internationalism, the war's legacy was the institutionalization of an architecture of internationalism that helped imagine a different future, that shaped the 20th century, both the international and national limits of that century, and its radical difference as a century of war and peace from what had gone before, and from what has become the much more global but less international century that is our own. Another reason to remember. Thank you. Thank you very much, Glenda. That was um, a really remarkable, and I think it took us into the complexity of this issue and the way it takes up people's effective connections of all kinds. And we're asked to kind of enter into the centre of a world that many people uh, attempted to occupy. So we're turning now to the, um, the, the moment when you get to ask questions and there's a roving microphone. I'm wondering if there are any burning ones in the audience. Geoffrey Sherrington. Thanks, Glenda. Um, it throws a lot of light on someone and I've always been fascinated by. If I could use this example to illuminate some of your earlier issues about internationalism. That is Lord James Bryce. Imperialist, but of interdependent dominions. Um, the notion that, therefore, in that sense, committed to the British Empire, but also seeing himself as an internationalist. I mean, he regarded himself as the first world citizen, said he'd worked, walked on every continent, climbed every mountain, etc. And seeing himself, of course, as part of the pre-war international peace movement. Yet, within one year of the war, fails on three counts. Belgian refugees can't do anything about them. Acting alone, correspondence to others doesn't get anywhere. Secondly, uh, conscientious objectors just start knocking on his door and saying, aren't you an internationalist? Can't you help us? And thirdly, and most importantly, the Armenians, whom he'd spoken up for from the 1870s in their search for autonomy, and in the end, nothing. He couldn't do anything couldn't explain to me what was happening. So I suppose my question is, is this an indication of the failure of old internationalism in the sense of right-thinking individuals, possibly in voluntarist organisation in the, in the civic sphere, 
to be replaced is, I think, what you're suggesting, the notion of political and social movement that must involve the state and must involve the, the, the intersection between nationalism and internationalism. Uh, Bryce, by the way, virtually didn't say anything about internationalism after the war, but he did turn his attention more to the possible li liberal democracy and the rise of the Labor Party might solve it all. Yeah, that's a really interesting question and very uh, put very well. I think I'm always reminded of someone like Hans Morgenthau, who's regarded as the father of realpolitik um, political theory. And he was a, a Weimar refugee, right? And he uh, who went to the United States and then wrote this book that was about politics among nations, it's called. And in it, he has two ways of thinking about the world. One is, he, you know, he talks about the UN and UNESCO and he says, you know, what a waste of time, UNESCO. You know, cultural understanding as if it's going to bring us peace. Because he was a, a refugee from the Weimar society. He knows one minute everybody's friends and you're Jewish but you're part of normal life and the next minute you're not. So cultural understanding, what happened to it? It's not, that wasn't missing. They all knew each other. So he really disliked that notion of, um, of some kind of you know, um, cultural answer to, to how you uh, actually get peace. But on the other hand, he also believed that the nation state was becoming more and more obsolescent. Now the reason why I bring him up in the context of Bryce is that you know, what, what are the lessons of someone like that who turns during the war and is it an older or a newer internationalism that's different? I think it's, it's true that each period has historically specific um, manifestations of you know, internationalists and nationalists in the 19th and the 20th century. Right? At different times, 1940s are different from the 1920s, different from the pre-war period. But at the same time, I also think that uh, there are these you know, changing contexts that interrupt, if you like, other ways of thinking about oneself and one's relationship to the world. And it may be that um, Bryce is an example of an interruption, but on the other hand, what is different about the 20th century is the extent from the late 19th century on, is the extent of these social organisations. And there is a view in the literature that um, in the 20th century, the reason why internationalism is so important is because of the strength. It's much more important at a social level. It's the politicians always trying to keep up. But yeah, I'm not sure if that's also true because at the, in the 1940s, the reason why internationalism is so important is because the US, um, at the moment where it's trying to get public support for entry into the war, is spreading the idea of United Nations, not as necessary as, as, a, as a form of international government, but this idea of community. And that tag word becomes very important and it's part of what builds people's support at a social level for these new United Nations associations and for the idea of some kind of change after the war. So that interaction is really important. So it's true that it's different in the 20th century because of the extent of the, so, uh, the capacity to organise and associate and the interest in that. And it's that, that's what makes the 21st century so different from the 20th in terms of interest in the United Nations, you know, who joins the United Nations associations. There is a world citizenship movement. There are people who belong to it. They often go to the talks at the Australian Institute for International Affairs. Some of you here might be here. So there is a movement. It's very small. It's nothing like the 20th century manifestations of these associations. There's a university, United Nations Association, I think. I don't know how well you do if you're here. Um, but so, yes, that's what makes a difference. But, but it's also true, I think, that there is, you know, war changes things. But it also then provokes a response to those changes. 
uh, you know, how else do you understand you know, what happens to German intellectuals in Australian society in the, during the war? This is a question that doesn't directly deal with what you've been covering, but it's something that comes up in my mind um, with nationalism and fanaticism. Is there a genetic basis here, or is it just an inculcated situation when you see people fighting each other for centuries and they can't stop? Yeah, well, that's the question that everybody asks about and has been asking. So the question of human nature is the one that was at the heart of these debates. And every, for every example you'd find of, you know, the, of some kind of endemic um, uh, urge or instinct to conflict, you'd find an example of the opposite. And sometimes it was thought in, of in gender terms, right, that men you know, fight, want to fight wars and women don't. But that's also not true, you know. So the, I, I can't answer that question, but I think it's important to understand. You know, historians that look at political culture are very interested in the kinds of momentum that... Um, uh, politics, politicians, academics give to certain views of um, other people or of one's own identity or rationales for joining wars or for not going into wars. So you could argue for the power of words, psychological power of words, if you like. So the, the very complex ways in which in some periods you know, societies or groups are inclined to go to war or not or who opposes, one needs to look at all those different var variables, if you like. Um, if it was as simple as genetic, then we wouldn't be trying to build League of Nations. You know, that humanity thing wouldn't be there. So there's always that tension, or wanting to kind of take control of human nature and shape it in certain ways. And that is part of the Enlightenment project from the you know, 19th and, and into the 20th century. I don't, you know, I don't know if, if there is a project now, that's my interest. Do people think, oh, we just are what we are and keep going, or are we trying to change ourselves? I don't think that debate's around as much in terms of national and international. That's what's interesting about the present. A very interesting uh, lecture. I learned so much. Thank you. I was interested in your comparison of internationalism with imperialism and nationalism. I think you were linking internationalism and, and imperialism. But it does strike me that in the interwar years, in places like Australia, it was far easier to be an empire nationalist than to be a nationalist, let alone an internationalist. Um, it seems to me after the, the First World War, there's the persistence of empire, inherently denying uh, nationalism. Yet the British government could espouse internationalism in one uh, venue and yet believe in empire. So. Obviously, they're very complex issues, and one could hold juxtapositioned ideas simultaneously, depending on the situation and the environment within which we are operating. Can you describe what was happening in Australia at this time and, and your comments on what I'm uh, suggesting? Yeah, I wish, I wish I could describe. I mean, I think the point is to understand the spectrum of ideas and of the relationships, the ways in which they were articulated, those relationships. So, you know, how far could you go towards kind of more internationalism, less nationalism, or more nationalism, more internationalism, and where, you know, where most of the discussion was. But in the Australian case, what's interesting is how little we know, partly because it's only quite recently that historians have started to ask the question, where's the international in the national and the imperial? So it's that third part to that relationship that, you know, more and more historians are drawing attention. But 
I'm not an historian of Australia in particular, and there may be others here, but we've had, I've had discussions with Australian historians, and I think it is an area, and you know, so Tamsin's work coming from a British imperial context is trying to throw more light on these questions, but it is a really important and interesting aspect of um, what's happening now in, in uh, historiography, and you know, more and more study of, um, I've got a student looking at the League of Nations Society at the University of Sydney, for example, to see who belonged and how, uh, what they were, thought they were doing, what they were trying to do, you know, there's, there's a lot that could be done, I think, in terms of those issues, but it's about looking for the internationalism when we've only been looking for the nationalism and the imperialism. And I'm, I'm as guilty because I wrote a book about nationalism that was about the ways in which the rise of psychology of it as a discipline influenced how we thought of the national and nationalism as kind of internal to ourselves. We started to explain nationalism as a, as a psychological phenomenon. And uh, I didn't notice that most of those books were also talking about internationalism because I was so focused on the, on the national because that's what everybody studied. So going back, I found that the international was there. So it's really a question of recovering. And you know, often his, historical breakthroughs are sometimes about documents. You know, we can find that text or letter somewhere in the archive. Sometimes it's about going back over texts and books we've read before and seeing what we haven't seen. And that's the case when we're, you know, if you're interested in women, it's often that, oh, here they are, how come we didn't notice them before? Or, in fact, uh, the international and its significance as an idea in the 20th century. Thank you, Glenda. That has um, really crystallised a lot of things that we were talking about today, I think, in terms of thinking of academics' con you know, contributions, the sort of vocabulary of internationalism that you were talking about, um, how that might change in the 1920s and 1930s after the war. And so, uh, you know, partly following on from Jeff's and Paul's question, I'm just here thinking of the place of democracy or perhaps even liberal democracy in that language or vocabulary of internationalism. I'm specifically thinking of John Anderson, who was the Chalice, was he? Chalice Professor of Philosophy at Sydney University and who goes through different political spec... I mean, is, is essentially an internationalist, I think you can say, in the 20s and 30s, and he goes through different political spectrums and by the mid-30s is changing, you know, is, is saying Stalinism's... You know, all, all that's wrong. Liberal democracy is what it's about. And he, as you were just answering to Paul, no, um, moves between critiquing nation and then critiquing... Well, I don't know. I don't know if he does critique internationalism, but mm. he certainly uses political concepts to, um, I think, work out an internationalist position. So the question, to try and unravel all of that, is really to explore a bit, if you could perhaps unpack a bit more that vocabulary of um, internationalism and how it might change in the 20s and 30s. And right. So, yeah. so the, some of the thinking behind the League of Nations is international government. So, and because the, the way in which um, the relationship between the national and international worked, often the national was thought of as, you know, a smaller version of what should be the international, not just in terms of how you create nations, you, you know, create them through sociability, therefore if you socialise individuals to get nations, if you socialise nations you get it international, so all those kinds of models, but also that in fact um, if nations are representative of individuals and that's a form of democracy then the international can be representative of nations 
and that's another form of democracy. So you get so that old idea of the parliament of man, right? So that is there embedded in it. But I think there's another level at which, and this may not be. So, the, so you know, someone like Leonard Wolf, when he comes up with his idea of international government for the Fabians, and when he's asked to do this research, and that model then is taken up at uh, the discussions in 1919, he goes, he is thinking about, okay, so what level of representation should we have? And he thinks municipal organisations. He doesn't think nation. He thinks it can't be the state. It has to be some other level. So these sorts of ideas and, and discussions are taking place. But there's another way in which you can look at it, and that is that for women and for colonial subjects, the League, for all its imperfections, becomes a really important site for, making, for having representation of some kind. And it invents this notion of an international political forum. So... Um, you know, Fiona Paisley's done work on uh, the, um, what is his name now? There's an in indigenous uh, guy who goes to Geneva in the 1930s in order to seek representation for Aborigines in Australia and to say, basically, can, can you please organise for Switzerland to take over, you know, sovereignty of the indigenous populations in Australia? And... You know, we know that there are all sorts of um, communities that are part of the mandate system, for example, or just in colonies, that start to write petitions to the League of Nations, even though the League has no power, but they start to write petitions to say, you know, we need to be heard, uh, this government is not representing our interests, um, there are Sioux Indians that go there as well. So it turns into, regardless of what it was intended to be, it turns into this sort of space for making democratic for claims to democracy of some kind of representation, which isn't really the way in which it was thought of when people were thinking about it as having as being a form of international government. So you both have that intellectual history that's underexplored, and it would be interesting to find out if there are academics in Australia, for example, who are writing um, about international government in that period. There are definitely in the 1940s, we know, but in you know the wartime and the post-war, and what they're thinking, what the role of that would be, uh, you know. Why do you need international government to do what? Um, Templey, in his book on the peacemaking, argues that the war, the military organisation of the war, in fact, was the template for the architecture of international government. That those, you know, form, um, the allied committees that were formed to provide food and to coordinate military manoeuvres, etc., they were all examples of intergovernmental discussion and relationships that were setting, providing the sort of norm for later. But that's a different idea of government. It's not about democracy, right? It is about a kind of architecture of organising the world, social planning, and so that's how you get later on. Well, you get after the war, you get um, you know, the World Health Organisation, but later on you get the Food and Agricultural Organisation. They're different visions of government. But it's a really good question, and it's one, again, you know, if you wanted to draw up a, a map of what, you know, the bits of the landscape that we don't have images for or borders for, then that would be one as well, democracy. And women as well as men. Hi there, Harry Sargent, I'm PhD candidate. I um, was just wondering um, what you felt about um, Max Weber and, and his, uh, his suggestion in 1919 that a state is uh, something which has a monopoly of, of violence in a particular area. Um, and it seems to me this idea is very antagonistic to internationalism because um, we have this connection of violence with, with nationalism um, and because the international order isn't based on any, any monopoly of strength. This is essentially an anarchy 
<laughs> which makes it fundamentally different to, to a nation state. Um, I was wondering if, if um, that was also perhaps a, a separate legacy of, of the First World War, um, this view, and if there was any responses to that view or a comeback which would connect nationalism with internationalism in a way that overcomes this problem? Um, the, the question of the state is there. It's, uh, it's some of the internationalist movements of the pre-war included, for example, anarchists. And so, I mean, Weber's not an anarchist, but, you know, so the questioning of the state was, was pretty fundamental. But what happens by the time of the war, th- th- that kind of argument has become pretty marginalised. So it's not, it's not at the centre, if you like, of interest in internationalism, in liberal internationalism, which is very much about maintaining the state, um, even though it's pushing at the idea of sovereignty in this period. And it ha- there are two examples of where... Um, State sovereignty is, in fact, reinvented. Uh, none of them are very successful, again, because of state interventions. One is the free city of Danzig, for example, uh, where you know, they couldn't decide where to draw the line, so they created a free city. And the other one was supposed to be the, um, the free city of uh, Fiume. But it, uh, that didn't work because um, Italy got a fascist government and even before then uh, it was occupied by um, right-wing Italians. So... But there were these ideas, and they, you know, they keep cropping up in the 20th century. So the, the idea of a free territory returns less as you know, an experiment in um, alternative sovereignties and ways of dealing with not kind of some conceptual, um, you know, intrinsic problem with the state and violence, but in fact just how do you, just, how do you solve sovereignty issues when, of course, you know, nation states don't really work. So there is an experimentation that takes place. And, but Weber is, you know, like the Weimar Germans, who are much more radical, in fact, than most of the other delegations, they're on the outer. It's the Weimar German delegation that goes to the League and says, we should have a federally organised League of Nations on the German model. All right? So exactly the same. We have these states, and at the top we're going to have a League of Nations that's like the Bundestag. The Swiss also say, yeah, federalism. The Americans are saying federalism, but they're um, thinking about that Frederick Jackson Turner, the historian, goes to the, it tries to get Wilson to put forward a, a plan for a federated Europe, in fact, on the American model. So there's a lot of federalism going on. This is not completely a question about the state. I, I don't think that it's, there's that kind of theoretical engagement that you're talking about, that Weber was you know, engaging, but there is... Are a fundamental engagement with questions of sovereignty that are seen as you know, part of the problem of state violence. So if you think of you know, Brinkley's text, he wants his film to be about um, the importance of humanity as, and high, the higher service of humanity over the state and Germany representing, pre-Weimar Germany, representing the extremes of, 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 of um, state violence in that context. Uh, my question was with regards to the women that you described um, in the uh, peace movements who use that idea of maternalism or motherhood to their advantage. Do you think in the long term that was harmful to the feminist cause? Was it what? Sorry? Harmful? Um, I mean, I thought your paper prompted so many lines of thought and inquiry, but I'll just pick up one. I mean, you've talked about, I mean, we all know nationalism, imagined community, dependent on certain technologies like print and media and so on and so forth. 
but obviously in the way that you're framing it, internationalism is an imagined community as well, dependent on many of the same technologies and in fact dependent on its conditions of possibility f by the existence of nationalism, that they're absolutely intertwined, which I gather you know, is your argument. But the sort of thing that intrigues me in all this um, is the rise of the psychological conception of both nation and the international. And uh, I'm going to do something odd here and um, um, have a return to the materialist moment and, and think about what are the conditions of possibility for that to happen because I think listening to you, what came um, through was the ways in which you have to start thinking about the nation and other entities in a psychological sense because of the vast mobility of people in the second half of the 19th century and into the 20th century. That you have to start rethinking the nation not just as people living in a place but people who are living all around the place. And that also prompts um, intellectuals because there's so much intellectual mobility, um, some of the stuff that Tamsin picks up and lots of other people, is prompting the issue of how do we think through the world um, that is incredibly mobile and people are moving around all the time. So that mobility is a sort of materialist context in which thinking through the... Na you have to rethink the nation and rethink the international. Um, and that's just a sort of... a. a, a pro a line of thought that um, your paper really prompted and I found it a very, very fertile thought. area of um, thinking about. Mm. Thank you. And there's one at the back. Um, you can also, of course, rethink the ways people move, the, te the technicalities of movement. movement. That's right. Yes, indeed. Speaking of mobility, um, and I guess I'm conscious of my uh, uh, role of asking the last question here, so I'll try to draw everything together. Um, but I really enjoyed your paper, and uh, I also enjoyed, too, the mention of the, the Murray family. Um, and my own interest in the Murray family comes from uh, looking through Hubert Murray's papers, and I noticed that there are a lot of elements of correspondence between Hubert as proconsul of New Guinea and, of course, Gilbert, his right. brother, who is in Oxford. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if that is kind of a microcosm of this transference of uh, a perhaps older imperial knowledge of governance and a newer um, international knowledge of uh, a way to govern in this kind of context of humanitarianism, this context of we you know, govern absolutely for the benefit of those ruled, and which is kind of encapsulated in the mandate moment and all of that. Um, I'd be interested in hearing whether or not that actually goes all the way through Hubert's, I mean, uh, Gilbert's thought in creating the mandates or uh, having a role in creating the language of the mandates. Um, and any other reflections you might have about that very interesting personal relationship between the two? I think that those two are really good projects <laughs> for both of you to do. Because I was, you know, I don't know a lot about Gilbert Murray. I have gone through his papers in the past, but I didn't find very much on Hubert. But in fact, if you go to the ADB entry, it's about Hubert more than about Gilbert. You go to Gilbert Murray and it's about Hubert. And, um, and I think it's a really interesting project. And it's one of the questions I've been asking Tamsin about these connections between, particularly Murray, because he has that Australian connection. So, and not just his brother, but other intellectual networks that he's part of that spread these ideas. 
you know, how is he reacting to what's happening here as well? How does that inform what he's thinking? Or in, in fact in New Guinea, yeah. So I think that's a fantastic project. I think Stevens is a fantastic project. I think that first question about maternalism and was it the wrong thing? You know, historians, I think the worst thing you can do is to, you know, judge people. Uh, what we want to do is understand their arguments and why they make them. And particularly women, because, you know, that maternalist argument is still part of our culture. It's how, you know, some women make arguments about why they should have certain roles and, and how other people make arguments about why they shouldn't have roles. So it's worth understanding how historically entrenched that argument is and what women were trying to do with it in that period and maybe why that argument and not another one, what its limitations were or possibilities. So it's worth studying that as well. So I think there is so much interesting work to be done and um, I will look forward to you know, reading it in the future. Thank you it, very much. It seems that if, uh, if patriotism is not enough, then what we know is not enough either. yet either. So before you go back and think of Geneva, um, <laughs> perhaps you can join me in thanking Professor Sluger for a very stimulating few hours. <laughs> <laughs>